I got into tech very haphazardly. I can recall a time when I told my mom, when she asked me, what did I want to be when I grew up? I said, you know, I, I, I could see myself as an inventor. This is Cameron Flowers. People call me Cam. I am a creative technologist and educator, and most recently, the founder and CEO of Floreo Labs. Cam didn't grow up to become an inventor per se, but he did realize that working in technology would fulfill his desire to be a professional problem solver. I was very much like, this is a tool. This is something that we can use to like create solutions to problems that aren't being solved. When he was in college, Cam was one of only five Black students in a 150-person computer science course. He saw the obvious problem, but he also saw a potential solution. He knew that technology could uplift communities of color, but that could only happen if more people of color could get a foot in the door. He started working in tech boot camps and realized he had a gift for teaching. <laughs> I was almost like a volunteer, you know, doing it for free. Um, but I, I was doing something that I loved. And I always maintained that, you know, I'm doing this because of, of joy and not necessarily because of work. It's not about the wage as much as it's about the change. You can hear it in his voice, right? Cam is an optimist, a doer. And that contagious sense of purpose got him a job with a tech boot camp in New York City that focused on teaching coding to people of color and folks at or below the poverty line. A dream job, as Cam puts it. I feel like with every job, right, there's like that honeymoon phase. Okay, I got a new job. I'm super excited about it. And I am very committed to this new organization that took a chance on me. You may be feeling a butt coming here. I feel like the, the disenchantment phase <laughs> started uh, right after working there. What comes next is a story that many of us know well, when that amazing new job turns into a job that you hate. It started off with small things, like Cam struggled to get up and running in New York just after his move, and he couldn't get support from his new job. But the small things turned into bigger things. He couldn't get resources that students needed to be successful, and he struggled to be taken seriously. I've had multiple experiences where I felt talked over. I felt like I was, you know, taken, taken, for, taken for nothing. Cam wasn't the only one who felt this way. He was one of only a few Black employees, and his colleagues were also frustrated at the irony that the organization built to uplift low-income students of color wasn't supporting Black employees in its own ranks. Every time someone that comes here, uh, works here as, as a person of color, they end up leaving within a few months because the culture is, is not supportive. The culture was high pressure with unrealistic expectations and sometimes punitive actions. Productivity wasn't measured by really reaching the students. And under these conditions, Cam felt like his successes were invisible. At a time, I started really suffering a lot of mental health issues because I would be going to work afraid of what the day would bring. Every time I went to work, it would be something new. There's a microaggression or a micro assault being made in a meeting or my manager is, is trying to get on my case. And all of that pressure of thinking through all of that um, really, really wore on me. There was times where I was going to work and like trying to fend off like little panic attacks from just the thought of what could happen at work today. Um, and those were the moments when I was just like, nah, like <laughs> this isn't this isn't what I signed up for, you know. I, there's no salary that you could pay me to be going through this this uh, very jarring um, feeling of of panic. 
Cam tried to talk to a few higher-ups about how he was feeling, but it fell on deaf ears. It became painfully obvious that nobody in management was considering his well-being. Eventually, Cam quit his job to build his own business, Floreo Labs. More on that later. But what he experienced at this job, the microaggressions, the dismissiveness, the lack of support, it fractured his connection to the work, and it eroded his strong sense of purpose— His employer wasn't fully invested in his well-being or satisfaction. As a result, they lost out on his talent, skill, and commitment. So what went wrong here? I mean, we know Cam's story is unfortunately a pretty common one. You start a dream job with stars in your eyes, and then over time, you become stressed, disenchanted, and burnt out. Right, because our system is broken. It's not good for the workers, and it's not good for companies. And today, we're going to talk about how to fix it. I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. This is Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. The modern American workplace is completely different from the way it was 100 years ago. But HR philosophies have remained relatively static over the decades. These philosophies lead to burnt out, unhappy workers. And that's only been exacerbated by the pandemic. And this has real consequences for innovation and business growth. Today, we're going to find out how we got here to a place where we're using outdated methods to manage 21st century workers. But we're also going to learn about how some modern HR leaders are paving a new path and leaving their employees what we're calling net better off. We're going to talk about a new groundbreaking study that shows why and how leaving employees better off is good for business. Simple question. Do people want to work? The dominant discourse that still holds true today says no, people don't want to work. This is Dr. Kelly Monahan. She's an organizational behaviorist and lead researcher at Accenture. She's not a cynic. She's describing the age-old tension between workers and their bosses. This disconnect is the whole reason why HR started and began and why management theory began, was to resolve this, this theory of people not wanting to work. As much as I disagree with it, it's very logical in its origin. 100 years ago, countless workers were leaving the fields and entering the factory for the first time. But the conditions were so bad that laborers sought some leverage by essentially working slowly or just not showing up. If you imagine going to work every day, working really long hours, really poor pay, really poor conditions, I'm not sure I'd want to be showing up to work every day either. So early on in the 20th century, a guy named Frederick Taylor pops up and he says... Factories filled with lazy workers are inefficient. Here's how to run your factory. And he calls it scientific management. Frederick Taylor had this notion that he knew better than the worker, even though he never did the task himself. Scientific management was about synthesizing tasks into perfectly efficient workflow. Managers would use stopwatches, quotas, and discipline. Top-down management that was inspired by the military, all to motivate the lazy worker who doesn't want to work. Command and control says, I'm the leader, do what I say. And if you don't, you know, I'll take the next person. You're very much seen as dispensable, in other words. And at the end of the day, you know, this was factory work. This was in the coal mines. This wasn't on a battlefield. And yet we took those same principles, that motivation techniques you need to have from a military style when you're in utter crisis mode and it's really, you know, life and death. We took that into our businesses and into our factories. And for a while, this fear-based approach worked. Jobs were scarce and people needed money. But it wasn't long before workers began to resent Taylor's approach. Frederick Taylorism drove absentee rates, 
through the roof. It drove turnover. And the government, government institutions at the time, actually outlawed it to be in practice at any sort of federal institution because they actually thought it was so dehumanizing. Employees created unions and factory owners became bogged down in labor negotiations and strikes. It became clear that employee well-being was a business issue. It's around the same time that another theorist pops up, and his ideas are completely different than Frederick Taylor's. His name is Whitting Williams. And I love his approach because, you know, if you know the show Undercover Boss, Whitting Williams was the first undercover boss. Whitting Williams went undercover in the factories and the mines, working alongside laborers to try and figure out how they tick. And he said, you know what, we have this so wrong. People want to be here. We have to change the conditions by which they work. We have to change the way that managers lead. People don't want to have knowledge only restricted to the leadership levels. They know how to do the job the best. They're closest to the customer. They're closest to the product that we're trying to create. They need to do their job. This might sound obvious now in the 21st century, but back then, workers were seen as little more than a pair of hands, an extension of the factory's machinery. There's this notion that they're fully motivated by money. That's not true. Yes, money is fundamental, but instead, they want to be respected by their managers and their colleagues. They want to have a a job that they feel dignity around and respect. Whitting Williams observed there were better ways to motivate workers, specifically by giving them a sense of purpose. He claimed that strict top-down management robbed workers of fulfillment and finding purpose in their craft. And that was ultimately bad for the factory, too. He wrote a book, and at the time, he, he opened up the book with, it is the worst time of all of human history, the relationship between the supervisor, leader, and worker. But between the battle of two opposing management theories, it was Frederick Taylor's scientific management that stuck. In a factory setting where efficiency and, I'm going to say it, greed is king, this isn't totally surprising. Of course, HR policies did evolve over the decades. Government intervention improved working conditions and employees began to receive benefits. But in the 1960s, when globalization upended the American economy, worker well-being was deprioritized again. As businesses looked overseas for labor, leaders found guidance in the theories of an up-and-coming economist named Milton Friedman. And so Milton Friedman came up and he wrote an article in the 1970s and said, we have got to basically let the free markets do their thing. It's the moral responsibility of business to meet shareholder needs. Shareholder wealth maximization is going to be the path forward to actually create the most opportunity for everyone. And so this mantra of shareholder wealth maximization became the the guiding principles of business, 80s, 90s, all the way up to our present day. Friedman Economics says that workers' well-being boils down to a column in a spreadsheet, dollars and cents that are merely used to motivate the worker who doesn't want to work. And every penny spent detracts from the shareholders' quarterly returns. So I think this whole approach to workers as assets, you know, I need to extract more labor from my lazy workers. It's an interesting approach that really doesn't feel in line with the modern world at all. No, we're not on assembly lines or working in factories in large part, especially not in the American economy. But it's actually encouraging because caring for employees has become more prevalent after there was a 2019 business roundtable where 200 CEOs got together and then came out with a new statement of purpose. Yeah. And this new statement of purpose completely overturned Milton Friedman's statement. 
and basically said that companies need to create value for all stakeholders, including employees. Yeah, and now the challenge is how are companies reorienting, what, a hundred years of HR policy to really create value for employees and all stakeholders? Yeah, because, I mean, it's got to be deeper than just shallow perks, right? Right. A foosball table yeah. or more snacks. Yeah, we. I think we tried that in the dot-com boom. Like, would a foosball <laughs> table make up for 80-hour work weeks? Turns out, <laughs> no, not, not enough. <laughs> Those are great, but they don't really speak to employees' more human needs. So next, we're going to talk with some folks who commissioned Accenture's amazing research, the study that's turning traditional company management structures inside out. It's called the Care to Do Better Report. In it, they uncover what employees really need and specifically how businesses can care for their employees, leaving them net better off and do so in a way that also grows their business. Workers are human beings, but I think under the old paradigm, workers were considered FTEs or headcount. This is Ellen Shook. She's the chief leadership and human resources officer of Accenture and the co-author of the Care to Do Better report, along with fellow chief human resources officer of Marriott, Dr. David Rodriguez. Given my background as a psychologist, I've always been interested in in why I went to my profession. I was always interested in the impact of the workplace on people's uh, lives. Ellen and David are modern HR leaders, which is to say they believe that businesses are responsible for their employees' well-being. When people come into the workplace, they're bringing their entire selves to the workplace. And so employers need to be concerned about that, know that that's on the minds of their workers and that the employer has a responsibility to be sensitive and responsive uh, to those concerns. And so they sought to prove scientifically that businesses could leave their workers net better off and grow financial performance at the same time. The resulting research empirically puts to bed the century-old debate between Frederick Taylor and Whitting Williams. The research proved that by focusing on the whole human being, that uh, not only do you lift your people, but you lift the organizational performance. I will tell you that it's founded on decades of research in terms of uh, human values and the needs that people have. So bringing this to the forefront and making the point that employers have both a responsibility and just a great opportunity to bring value to the lives of people and in the process build better and more successful organizations, I, I think it's a pretty big deal. The research team started by identifying what workers need to unlock their full potential at work. They surveyed more than 15,000 workers and 3,200 executives worldwide, and they analyzed more than 100 peer-reviewed articles. And they found that an employee's ability to perform in their job is tied to six basic needs— First, the obvious. Workers have financial needs and they have employable needs, meaning they need to get a paycheck and have marketable skills. This has been where businesses historically have focused all their attention. But the strongest drivers of positive employee behavior are the other dimensions. Here are the other dimensions. Employees have physical needs. They need to feel safe at work and be physically well. They have relational needs. They want to feel like they're part of a team, included and welcome. They also have emotional and mental needs. And lastly, they need to feel like they have a purpose. How inspired, how engaged are people in in their work and engaged in the purpose of the company? We heard about Whitting Williams earlier. He discovered a century ago that the holistic needs of employees matter. 
But for decades, the relationship between employee and employer remained so one-dimensional. I give you money, you give me labor. All this extra stuff is not my problem. But that extra stuff, it matters a lot. Accenture found that 64% of a person's potential at work is tied to having all six of these needs met. Organizations that over-rotate on what they think is naturally their responsibility are actually missing out on their ability to unlock more of their people's potential, which drives business results, but also to bolster trust, which is an essential currency in the world today. And the survey data shows, not surprisingly, that workers have high expectations from their employers. Three quarters of employees surveyed believe that their employer is responsible for their holistic well-being. But there's a disconnect. Even after the pandemic, less than half of C-suites agree. But I think a broader theme is really emerging right now. And I think that it's really a silver lining. And it's really about how organizations individually and collectively through the communities can really drive sustainable, positive change for a better, more equitable future for all. But in order to move forward, HR leaders need to change organizations from the inside, and that requires forgetting old habits. I think the first and foremost is you have to get the buy-in across the entire leadership that you need to change. I think it's really hard to do this from what I'll call the engine room. You can't really just run around changing your programs, policies, and practices if you don't have alignment among the leadership team. It can be very uncomfortable for a CHRO to, having earned a seat at the table, if you will, by being very fluent in the business metrics of an organization, to shift to a more balanced view and voice at the table, leading with the head and leading with the heart. And I think that it's something that needs to be practiced and learned. That said, Ellen is optimistic. The actual you know, things that organizations could do to change that equation are really well within the reach of um, every single organization, large, small, um, regardless of, of what they do for a living. I think we're going to see a renaissance in in this area. And this is partly why we did this research, to call attention to the fact that it's not just good for the individual, it's great uh, for the company. And we wanted to provide a roadmap. In practice, businesses could spend on employee care at the expense of the bottom line, or they could preserve the bottom line at the expense of the employee. But this roadmap David is talking about is what Accenture calls sweet spot practices. They are actions that every business can take that will care for all those employee needs we talked about, while at the same time maximizing business performance. We're going to dive into a couple of the sweet spot practices here, and then we'll meet a modern HR leader who's putting these ideas into practice. The first sweet spot practice, have a two-way conversation with employees, meaning listen to what your people need and provide them with data. It can be very simple by making sure that your frontline supervisors are having uh, listening sessions or town halls where there's two-way 
conversation. And this goes back to something Whitting Williams observed as an undercover boss in the factories a century ago. Workers are the experts, and they know what they need on the front lines. But this is at odds with the common top-down style management. So having this two-way conversation serves two purposes. It supports the employee in doing their job, and it also shines light on potential blind spots to management. Those feedback loops uh, going in both directions, it's part of the company's immune system. And so your workforce can be so invaluable in staying in touch with you know, what's happening in the marketplace. The second sweet spot practice is setting and sharing people metrics, which means setting targets for diversity and equity and being transparent about meeting those goals. Being transparent about your people metrics can be really scary. But I'll tell you, it's this, this concept of transparency and building trust is really an accelerator for change. We're already seeing this play out. Before, historical wisdom might dictate that conversations about race should be left outside work. But especially this past year, employees are calling on this to change. They're calling for business leaders to explicitly talk about race and to examine their part in perpetuating or addressing systemic racism. Certainly the health crisis, the global pandemic, but I think also really the racial and social justice issues that have come to a head, as well as the financial crisis that's happening in a very uneven way, I think are really the forces that are making leaders, CEOs, take a step back and really think about their obligation to not just be consumers of talent, but to be really creators of talent. And when businesses hold themselves accountable to specific goals, that builds trust. It can help employees feel included, welcome, and part of a team. If you pull back the onion skin and see how people of color are being impacted more significantly, much more significantly than white people, I think you would you quickly get to get to a place where you say, this is not good enough, and we need to look at how we conduct business. It's no longer good enough to go back to what we had. Ellen says that meeting employees' needs can't only be on the business agenda in times of abundance. It's also crucial during hard times and economic downturns, because as we come out of the other end of this pandemic and workers are more able to choose where they work, the businesses who care for their workers holistically will have a competitive advantage. Even during this time where the average company is seeing a decline, companies that do focus on this and do the right thing for their people and their business can access quite outsized growth. Employers can be arrogant and say people don't have anywhere to go, but people do have choices. And uh, we're seeing, you know, several sectors kind of really surge in, in job numbers, you know, whether it be healthcare or logistics and transportation, tech, organizations who really led with values to create value during this time are going to be the winners because employees and people will have choices to make again. And consumers have choices. And organizations who chose to leave their people net better off will be the leaders and not the laggards. So what does this all look like in practice? Next, we're going to talk to a forward-thinking CHRO who enacted a pretty radical policy in order to hold leaders accountable and gain trust within her organization. 
Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I think that a lot of、um, my peers initially were shocked. This is Fran Katsudis. She's the chief people, policy, and purpose officer at Cisco. Yeah, so it was about two years ago that we made the decision to share with our employees all of the employee relations cases that we received、um, on an annual basis. Cisco's radical transparency policy is extremely unusual in a corporate environment, especially one with seventy-five thousand employees. Typically, businesses want to keep internal issues quiet. What I don't agree with is that. I feel like a company has to take on the risk to discuss what's happening within the four walls, if you really want to change it. And so that's where I feel like we have to be bolder. So Cisco HR leaders stood up in a big company meeting and shared employee complaints. We shared with them things like how many of those cases were about discrimination or bias,、um, how many were about negative behavior. We told them how many of the cases required disciplinary action, how many required coaching. I remember when our leader of employee relations was sharing some of the specific cases that had come in, and she really shared some of the the most challenging situations.、Um, I remember in the room, it was incredibly. Quiet, and there was almost this electric buzz. Like people were really, really surprised that we were doing this. And what happened afterwards was pretty amazing. There were so many employees who came to us and said, "Hey, you know that thing that you talked about in the meeting that happened to me once before?" And、uh, thank you so much for for sharing that. What happened next is interesting. Employee claims increased. Once people understood they were being heard by management and that management would hold itself accountable. Employees felt more free to speak up. Sometimes having the more difficult conversations means that you're giving your people the permission to do the same. We have to continue to hold ourselves accountable to just having real conversations with our people. It can be scary to hang out proverbial dirty laundry for all to see, but Fran says that Cisco employees met leadership's candor with understanding and grace. I don't think they expect perfection from us whatsoever. I think what they expect is that we have the discussion, and even it's even more important, I think, to have the discussion when you don't have all the answers. And I think that's something that that just guides us. It, it's not easy, and it's really uncomfortable sometimes to say, "I don't know," but we'll figure it out. But I think that's the type of relationship that our people want to have with us. And as much as it's about transparency from management, Cisco's approach is based on a two-way conversation, which means trusting employees and listening to them. Our strong belief is that our people know the right things to do from a business perspective, and we we need to listen to them. This shows up in a number of ways. It's learning what employees need to be effective at their jobs. It's hearing people out as they're navigating working during a pandemic, and it's confronting conversations about race and equity head on, and then being honest about shortcomings. And I think people have always been so afraid of, of saying something wrong that they don't say anything at all, and as a result of that, we haven't had a lot of the conversations that we need to have. If it hasn't been said enough in this episode, the business results will follow. Sometimes I joke that、um, taking care of our people、um, is a little bit selfish because what I realize is we take care of our people; they take care of the business. 
Do you remember Cam Flowers from the beginning of this episode? Well, I want to circle back to him because his story has a happy ending. After Cam quit his job, he started Floreo Labs. It's a creative technology incubator. And after what Cam experienced at his last job, he was intentional about building a space where all of his partners, clients, and employees were cared for. Floreo means flourish. And so we even created an entire manifesto for how we wanted to set our business up to be a space where everyone could flourish. Um, And we very quickly utilized that strong community base and morale to end our first year of operations profitable and um, were able to 10x that revenue in less than a year after that, even though we were dealing with the global pandemic. So Josh, 10x revenue growth, even in the middle of a pandemic, and his employees, they're satisfied too. I mean, that's exactly what we've been talking about all this time, right? Is that everyone's saying, look, if you take care of your employees, you get better results. Well, there's proof. It's understandably hard though, right? Because it requires completely reevaluating super old assumptions that have really stuck. And those assumptions are about what motivates workers. Who knew? that people who were happy and felt like they were being supported in their workplace would actually outperform people who were miserable and hated their job. Yeah, workers want to work. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, again, Accenture proved this, right? They showed that 64% of the potential for an employee was tied to those holistic needs. Yes. So to leave employees net better off, companies need to consider their holistic needs beyond that traditional paycheck or the skills training. They need to meet their workers' relational needs, their physical, emotional, and mental needs. And finally, their desire for a sense of purpose. To learn more about how exactly to do this while also maximizing financial growth, read more about the sweet spot practices at Accenture.com slash built for change. Special thanks to Cameron Flowers, Dr. Kelly Monahan, Ellen Shook, Dr. David Rodriguez, and Fran Katsudas for talking to us in this episode. Built for Change is a podcast from Accenture. More episodes are coming soon. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review. 